0: Every religious tradition is full of such images. Jihad, after all, part of the Islamic tradition—the great warfare that even from the time of the prophet was a part of Islam. But it's not just Islam. Every religious tradition is full of battles of battles and fighting, and the great battles of the Hebrew Bible that both Jews and Christians uh, uh, acknowledge—the great war, the great conflict at the end of time in the Book of Revelation—are. Even in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sri Lankan chronicles the wars between the Tamil and the Buddhist kings. And in the Mahabharata from which this image is taken, the great fight between the Karavas and the Pandavas, two sets of cousins. And as one of the sets of cousins is about to go to war, Arjuna, he says out loud, he says to himself, why am I going into battle? I'm either going to kill or be killed. It's messy business. Why on earth would I want to do such a thing? And as luck would have it, the driver of the chariot just happened to be Lord Krishna, who said in what became then the song of the auspicious one, the Bhagavad Gita, which is central to the Hindu imagination and is regarded by many as the kind of the Gospels, the Bible of Hinduism, Lord Krishna says why he has to fight. And ultimately, the reason is that all life is battle. You can't escape it. You can't ever get away from the battle of life. The only question is, how are you going to fight? Are you going to fight with integrity? Are you going to capitulate to the most base form of struggle? And this is, Gandhi then picked up on this idea for his own own thinking about nonviolent ways of fighting. You can't escape fighting. You shouldn't even try. It's how you fight that's what makes a difference. So every religious tradition has these images of warfare. They're repositories of symbolism ready to be awakened and then be employed in some cases in a political way. Because this, of course, coming back to Binderwali, is exactly what happened in the Sikh case. Because in Binderwali's case, unlike the revival preacher that I remember from my Protestant past, that great war that he was talking about was not just a war within the soul. It was a political war. And unlike what I expected to find, a politician who was politicizing religion, what I found was a preacher who was, in a sense, religionizing politics, raising political and social struggle to the high proscenium of spiritual drama, the great battle between good and evil, and right and wrong. And he knew, Binderwali knew, where the evil was located. He couldn't even utter her name. He would just kind of sputter when he said, that lady born into a house of Brahmins. He was talking about Indira Gandhi, of course, the prime minister. She was the one. And indeed, she was puzzled about what to do with Benerwale. She didn't understand what the conflict was about. I mean, it was an imagined war in Benerwale's head. How was she to know that there was no way she could do anything, really, to solve that war? And in fact, the more violent she tried to assert her force in putting it down, the more violent would be the response. Such is the way of responding to a form of terrorism that's propelled by an image as a sacred war. She wasn't the first political leader to make this tragic mistake and listen to the advice of her generals. Oh, don't worry, Indira, we have a plan. We're going to tippy-toe in, in the middle of the night, in the Golden Temple, where Wali is hiding out, and we will do away with them. We will, we will cut off the leadership. Just get to the leaders and do away with them, and we'll get rid of this terrorist movement forever. That's what they told her, and she bought the idea. And sure enough, they tried a disastrous military operation. They had to bring in tanks. To to knock down the entrance to the Golden Temple. And finally, when they got in, there were a thousand pilgrims in between the soldiers and Bindranwali. They eventually killed him, but they also killed a thousand innocent, sick pilgrims who had come there just to be at the precincts of the sacred shrine of the Golden Temple. And later that year, Mrs. Gandhi's own bodyguards, who were sick, pulled out their automatic rifles as she walked from her. Her home too in the lovely gardens of New Delhi to her office and riddled her full of bullets and she lay bleeding and dying on the ground. And then in response, thousands of Sikhs were killed and the and the violence spiraled. It was much worse than it had been before. Binderwali was martyred, and the movement continued until the end of the end of the nineteen eighties, and eventually it just petered out. It petered out largely because it lost force, the villagers failed to support the movement any longer. It wasn't the tough strategy that Mrs. Gandhi adopted that that was successful. It was simply that this vision of warfare, this great war, just dissipated over time, as fantastic images do. Well, this idea of religious challenges to the secular state as happened earlier in Sikh history. I was in India in the 1970s when another movement, this one a Gandhian movement led by Jayaprakash Narayan, the Gandhian leader, (coughs) had stopped the Indian government in its tracks with what he called total revolution, a protest against the corruption of political life. So the protests of the Sikhs, although violent, were New in that sense. They were part of a tradition of, of religious critique against the secular state that had already emerged in the 1970s and then later, and with the Jansung Party and later with its successor, the BJP, the Bhartia Janata Party, uh, became the largest religious nationalist movement in the world and for a time ruled the Indian government. And elsewhere, as I began to look at cases from place to place and look at other parts of first South Asia and then the Middle East and then throughout the world, I found other examples of religious activism. The case of Sri Lanka, however, the Buddhists were not as nonviolent as Buddhists are supposed to be. You're saying, Buddhists, wait a second, what about Ahimsa? Yeah, exactly, what about Ahimsa? I mean, after all, it was a Buddhist monk who assassinated one of the Sri Lankan prime ministers, Bindaranayaki. So when I went to Sri Lanka, and the Buddhist monks were very much involved in an activist movement against the government because of the governments uh, trying to deal with the Tamil separatist uh, situation in the north. And by the way, as recently as a month ago, there was a peace rally in downtown Colombo of Christians, Tamils, Hindus, uh, Muslims, Buddhists, all marching for peace when around the corner came a group of these orange-clad Buddhist monks with clubs in their arms, and they started beating the peace protesters and said, go away, go away. If you want peace, go to Jaffna up in northern Sri Lanka. Don't come here. These are Buddhist monks. When I asked one of the leading monks in Kandy how they could possibly support violence, he said, oh, we don't support violence in the Buddhist tradition. We believe in Ahimsa. I said, yes, but what about all these activities that your young Buddhist monks are taking part in? He said, well, he said, You know, as Buddhists, we believe in Ahimsa, but we also believe in karma. And some of these evil leaders receive their karma more quickly than they would like to. (laughs) He wouldn't say how, but you get the point.